This evening's talk will be called Emptiness and Solitude. So continuing on the same theme that we started with a couple of days ago. Both emptiness and solitude are similar in that they can only really be understood in terms of something that's missing, something that's absent. When we say that something is empty, like a bottle is empty, it's such because it is empty of something. It's empty of water or whatever might otherwise have been in it. So the emptiness is an, is an absence. And likewise, when we talk of solitude, we primarily, I think, understand it as the removal of, of company or of society or of busyness or of involvement with something. So when we come on a retreat um, and we enter into a more solitary experience, what that means is that we have taken something away. Our work, our family, our friends, our business. So solitude and emptiness have something in common. And I'm going to suggest that in fact in the way that these terms are used in Buddhism, they actually more or less converge. And I wonder sometimes whether the idea of emptiness as it was later developed might have started out life in the experience of solitude. This is more pronounced in the uh, Asian languages. And I'm best versed in Tibetan, so I'll stick with that. But the word for solitude in Tibetan is enba. And that both means a, a, a solitary place, it means solitude, but it can also be used as a verb. And I remember one phrase that I had to memorize amongst many things I had to memorize when I was a young monk, which was Dagi Enbe Pungbo, which means the body and mind are empty of self. But the word is not Dongba, empty, but it is Enba, solitude. In other words, the body and mind are solitary of self. Now, we can't say that in English. We don't have a way in a verbal form of understanding something to be solitary of something else. But you can do that. I don't know whether you can do it in Pali, but you can certainly do it in Tibetan. So, solitude is also a being solitary through the absence of something else. So what I want to reflect on this evening 
is um, how these two ideas somehow are intertwined one with the other. Emptiness might be a rather more abstract idea, solitude, something we think of as a personal experience, something we, we know, something we enjoy, or something we perhaps also find maybe a little bit daunting. But in both cases, it's about finding a way of being in the world in which something that habitually gets in the way or, or, or somehow crowds us in or keeps us stuck or blocked or cluttered or crowded is gone. And I suspect that in the experience of meditation, when the mind becomes more still, when the mind becomes more quiet, when the chatter begins to die down, then we begin not just to notice that the chatter is gone, but we begin rather positively to enjoy that absence. And we might talk of it in more positive terms, a kind of a inner peacefulness uh, or an inner silence. Something, has, something that we're used to being with is no longer there. That may not last very long, of course, but I suspect as we go more deeply into the practice in the course of a retreat, we find more and more this experience of a kind of clearing out of our mental clutter, an absence that becomes almost a positive new kind of presence, a simplicity, an openness. Something's fallen away and it's almost a relief that it has disappeared, dissipated, faded away. To explore the idea of emptiness, I'm going to actually describe to you my own history with this term and the various understandings that I've picked up along the way as to what it means. When I first arrived in India as a 19-year-old and started studying Tibetan Buddhism in Dharamsala, very quickly, probably within the first few days, uh, from knowing really nothing about Buddhism, I began to pick up that this idea of emptiness was somehow kind of important. And in the Tibetan Geluk school in which I was trained, emptiness is equivalent to um, ultimate truth. And the person who gains direct insight into emptiness in a sort of contemplative, meditative way achieves enlightenment. Enlightenment is really understanding the nature of emptiness which is the, the final truth of reality itself. So obviously it has a fairly high and important status in this particular form 
of Buddhism. And for many years uh, after that, I spent an awful lot of time um, studying and thinking about and meditating on emptiness. The very first thing that you are taught uh, about what emptiness is is the phrase Rangshingidrubi Dongba, that emptiness is the emptiness of inherent existence. Now, at first sight, that may not seem terribly illuminating, but this idea of inherent existence is very, very central uh, to understanding what emptiness is about. Just as a bottle is empty of water, all things, all beings are empty of inherent existence. Inherent existence means that things somehow are felt to exist in and of themselves independently of any other conditions. This is presented in a Buddhist context not just as a philosophical or metaphysical idea, but it is very much to be understood in terms of our actual felt experience of inherently existing, particularly in relation to our sense of being me. That's where we start. There is something that is built into our organism. The Tibetans even call it something that is innate, something we're born with. And that is a kind of gut sense that who I am is somehow deep down at the core of myself, something that does not change, that's not dependent upon anybody else or any other conditions. It feels as though it's always been there and it always will be there. My true self, as it were. And this feeling is so utterly real for us, it's very difficult to conceive of ourselves in a way that doesn't somehow um, imply this permanent or independent, separate me. I remember one of the examples that my first Tibetan teacher gave of this, uh, trying to sort of you know, explain to us in rather more ordinary language what this meant. He said, imagine you're in a large crowd of people and then somebody calls out, thief, thief, stop, thief. And everybody in the crowd turns around and looks at you. <laughs> How do you feel then? How do you feel when you've somehow been exposed? You've been, you're now the object of other people's blame. You're being, uh, in a way, revealed as the thief. Whether or not that's true doesn't really matter. If you're subject to that gaze of others with that implied threat, you feel what we call, well, what we would say in, in, in English, intensely self-conscious. 
at those moments, our sense of existing independently and inherently becomes instantiated in the very uh, flesh of our body. We, our heart might accelerate, we might start to sweat, we start justifying ourselves. That wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. But what's important in this uh, example is to actually pay attention to those moments in your life when you do actually feel as though you have this kind of intense, inherent, real existence. What does that feel like? Emptiness is the emptiness of that. Emptiness is to experience your body-mind process as simply a changing set of conditions that comes, that goes, that's dependent upon causes, dependent on circumstances, that is fluctuating, that is changing, that is shifting, that is generating other consequences. And when we meditate, particularly when we're doing mindfulness or vipassana meditation, we, we specifically focus on the impermanence, on the... Uh, on, on, on the not-self nature of our experience. And all of these meditations are really ways of, of going against the instinctive conviction that I am something not impermanent, not um, selfless, but something intensely real. And so we'd be trained to meditate on this condition of life, this utterly contingent, shifting, changing experience as a kind of counterweight to this instinctive grip on me. And this sense of me, this in, in, in inherently existent me, is not so much a thing, but rather a kind of a, a hold a kind of a grasping, a kind of a clutching. It's called, in fact, dangzin in Tibetan, which means self-grasping. So it's a bit like when you, when you make a fist. If you really clench your fist tight and hold it, at a certain point you begin to feel there's something solid that you're holding, where in fact, of course, there's nothing there. It's a bit like that. The, the, this sense of, of me is, is created through a kind of visceral uh, clinging or holding. But when you search for it, when you try to pin it down, when you try to find it, you can't find anything. So this, leads, this, this analysis leads in two directions. First of all, it leads to realize that when you pay attention to your experience, um, rather than it all being consolidated around a sense of me and mine, you find that when you go through your body, when you pay attention to your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings, all you ever encounter are transient processes and events. There's nothing solid there, nothing fixed. And that conflicts or contradicts this instinct 
uh, instinctive uh, feel of being me. And this is why in Madhyamaka philosophy, which is the philosophical system in Indian Buddhism, the idea of emptiness is said to be synonymous with the idea of conditioned arising, conditionality, dependent origination, however you translate it. That the two are basically the same thing. That something is empty of inherent existence because it is arising out of contingent causes and parts and other factors. And something is, em is, is contingent or conditional because it is empty of any fixed essence or substance or thingness. These are two ways of really looking at the same thing. But the other side of it, and this is perhaps the rather more mystical dimension of this kind of analysis, is that when you look deeply, particularly in a contemplative, reflective way, when the mind has become still, when you're focused on the moment-to-moment -moment experience that you're undergoing, is that the more you peer into that experience, the more you just keep on going. That there's no end to it. That it's a bit like the quest for the final ultimate particles of matter. When I was a young teenager, I think they, had, they were talking about atoms and, 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 uh, and certain subatomic particles. And over the last 40, 50 years, we keep on coming up, the scientists keep on coming up with something that's even more subtle than subatomic particles. Now they're hypo, hypo, you know, speculating about string theory, which is extremely weird. And I have a funny feeling that this will just keep on going, that there may be no end to our quest for reality, that we'll keep on finding something else. And then we ask, well, what's that? What are these strings that are quivering in some 11-dimension hyperspace? And they'll probably turn out to be you know, contingent upon something else. Will we ever get to a point where, as it were, the buck stops? Probably not. And this is certainly the, the view in Madhyamaka philosophy. Um, when the Dalai Lama teaches this, he uses a, a colloquial Tibetan phrase to express it. He says, which means there's no finger putting place. There's nothing you can put your finger on. The more you look, you just keep on going. You don't arrive at something, and you don't arrive at nothing. It's, the emptiness is then understood as a sort of middle way between being and non-being, or something and nothing. That there's no, as it were, final point. Nothing, you don't arrive at nothing because there's always something else that needs to be examined and broken down and then that too um, arrives at something that can be analysed and broken down. 
And experientially, what this feels like is a kind of letting go and a kind of almost a sense of disappearing down a rabbit hole uh, that just keeps on going on forever. A sense of infinity begins to open up within the context of your very finite life. It, em, 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 emptiness in this sense is perhaps equivalent to what we might call the infinity of things. And again, this is not just a concept, but I think it's something that often you experience in meditation. It's as though when you, at a certain point in, in letting go of this grip or this grasp or this hold, it opens up the possibility of just uh, somehow descending into a kind of infinite regress in which nothing can be can somehow be held onto as a last resort. And this, in the writings of Tsongkhapa, he calls the ultimate unfindability of things. So emptiness is the is the unfindability of something that lies at the heart of yourself or the heart of anything. It just keeps on going. There's no bottom line. Now I think this is not entirely different from the experience of asking the question, what is this? When we ask a question of this nature, we're replacing our habitual attitude towards ourselves and towards others and towards things, which is premised on the notion that, well, there's Michael and there's Mary. That's who they are. And in, if I look inside here, I'll find Stephen. And this is kind of tacit. It's not necessarily a, you know, an opinion or a view that we consciously express, but we have a kind of conviction or confidence that there's something there. And we know what that something is, more or less. But when we introduce questioning into our meditation, we're tacitly acknowledging that, if I'm honest with myself, I don't really know who I am. And I certainly don't know who Michael is or Mary is, really. And I don't really know, if I'm perfectly honest, what a chair is or a table is. If we start opening up this, this great doubt, as they call it in Zen, we again are allowing ourselves to uh, let go of a certain hold or grip or grasp that we know what things are. I know who I am. When you say, what is this? You are admitting, although you may not say it in so many words, I don't know what this is. I don't know. There's a kind of not knowing that is unavoidable in any act of genuine inquiry or questioning. You can't get round that. And this questioning, this inquiry, 
um, is likewise one that opens up the world as, and I'm going to use a different kind of language now, as mysterious, as strange, as uncanny, as astonishing, as surprising. What we find in Zen, as opposed to, let's say, Theravada Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, we find the language or a language that's much more akin to poetry. That's always been, for me, one of the great attractors of Zen Buddhism, is poetry, painting, art, that is not so concerned with conceptual accuracy and doctrinal correctness, but is trying to evoke this experience of unfindability uh, through um, appealing to moments of the sublime, moments of the beauty of nature, moments of when, moments when the mind just stops and is content just to be present with the sheer weirdness of being here at all. And you might find yourself formulating this as a question such as, why is there anything at all rather than just nothing? Or you may have another form of words that exerts the same kind of tingle factor. Uh, to be really astonished by the fact that you're sitting, that you're breathing, that you're here. And in this process we find ourselves suspended between is and is not, between yes and no. When you genuinely ask the question, who am I? What is this? You're recognizing, you're neither affirming nor denying you're being this, you're being this or you're being that. You just say, I don't know. And that suspension of knowing is what also opens up this, this emptiness, this empty space, this infinity, this mystery of life itself. This is very well illustrated in a famous uh, koan that we find in the Chinese uh, Chan tradition. It concerns Bodhidharma, the Indian monk who purportedly brought Chan to China in about the 6th century. And he had a disciple called Hueko. And one day Hueko uh, set out to find his teacher Bodhidharma, who at that time happened to be meditating in a cave on Mount Song. And well, to cut a long story short, it goes on, on, it goes on a bit. But in any case, Hueco calls, stands in the snow. This, this is a, it's a, it, there's a very famous uh, painting, a Tang Dynasty painting of Hueco standing in the snow. Um, and he calls out to Bodhidharma, Master, Master, my mind is not at rest. Please set my mind at rest. And then a voice calls from the cave and says, okay, uh, bring me your mind and I'll set it to rest for you. <laughs> so Hueco goes off and a few days later he comes back and he says, um, 
I've searched everywhere for my mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma replies, there, I've set it to rest for you. Now this is strikingly similar to this idea of the unfindability of things, the infinity of things, the unpin-down-ability of, in this case, the mind. You look for your mind, and it too is nothing you can put your finger on. It's nothing you can grasp or clutch. Uh, it simply opens the... It's another doorway to this sort of infinite regress. But what's telling about this little story is that to, to, to experience that unfindability is felt as a kind of rest. Uh, the inquisitive, frustrated mind comes to a certain peace. It's not a static or passive sort of experience, but one in which you come to rest in the sheer astonishment of at life being something you cannot pin down. It's not something you can capture in words or doctrines or theories or anything. It is infinitely strange and mysterious. And this sense of emptiness as a kind of endless movement is also captured in the idea that emptiness is like space. Uh, this is often, uh, this is often a, a, an image that's used to illustrate emptiness. Is they call it the space-like emptiness. And in fact, in Chinese, when they translated the word shunyata into Chinese, the Chinese chose the word kong. And kong is also the word for space. Actually, that kind of makes things a little bit unclear, to be honest. But the notion of space um, in Indian Buddhism, and likewise in Tibetan Buddhism, is not at all like the notion that we in the West have of space. If, um, if I tell someone, oh, there's a lot of space in this room, or look at, you know, we're this vast space of the night sky, we tend to think of space as a kind of container. Uh, there is space because I can now, because this room or this place or whatever, allows me to then put something there. The space. Is there any space in the car? Yes, please come in. We can fit you in. But the definition of space um, in classical Indian Buddhist thought is the absence of resistance. The absence of resistance. In other words, the space in this room for a Buddhist is not this big empty space here. But the absence of but space is what allows me in this room to get from here to there. Because nothing stands in my way. 
Space is, is, is the absence of what obstructs you from getting from A to B. There's no, nothing that resists your movement, nothing that impedes your movement, nothing that obstructs you. And so in this sense, space is a dynamic concept, not a static concept. And this would have been very self-evident to, uh, to Buddhist thinkers. They would never have thought of space as a sort of a big container of, you know, feeling spaced out. But rather as um, the removal or the absence of what inhibits movement. And so again, this idea of this infinite regress, you further you look, you don't arrive at anything. It's actually a kind of motion. It's a kind of a movement. It's a, it's a restful kind of absorption or disappearance almost into something infinite. And the path too is therefore for Nagarjuna understood as emptiness. He says the middle way, emptiness is the middle way, the middle path, is a famous statement of Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna being the second century Indian philosopher who, in a sense, developed most um, effectively the idea of emptiness. And he says the middle way, emptiness is the middle way, and I used, to, I used to think that that was just sort of a polemical utterance. In other words, this teaching on emptiness, that's the Buddha's real teaching. But I think actually he was meaning that very literally. That a middle way, or a way, a path, is by its very nature something that allows you to move without obstruction. A path is, a, is an open, unobstructed, space where obstacles are being cleared aside so that you can move freely. As soon as you set up emptiness as a kind of a space or a kind of an, an, a truth, or some kind of ultimate reality, as soon as you picture it to yourself as a, as a thing of any kind, however subtle, you've missed the point. So you have this verse of Nagarjuna that says, Buddhas teach that emptiness is letting go of views or opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. In other words, if you believe that emptiness is something that you can pin down and understand and define, You've totally missed the point. Uh, the the um, what you you've turned the cure into a poison is another image that Nagarjuna uses. He says it's he says emptiness is like a snake, and if you pick it up in the wrong way, it will kill you. It's very important that you somehow handle it in the appropriate way. If you treat it as though it's a thing, even a mystical thing or an ultimate thing, you've actually turned it into the very thing that it is meant to cure you of. So emptiness for Nagarjuna is letting go 
of views. It's a letting go. And in fact, from this point of view, it would actually be better to translate it not as emptiness, but as emptying. It's an emptying. It's a releasing. It's a letting go. It's a allowing something to fade away and disappear and fall off. Again, this idea of a movement, a kind of a discarding of something, a letting go of something. So this has taken us from sort of medieval Tibetan philosophy back to Zen, back to Nagarjuna, and now let's go back to the Buddha. And here we find actually quite an approach that's similar in many ways, but in some ways is actually rather more concrete. I don't mean concrete in the sense of solid, but somehow more accessible. There's a discourse in the middle-length uh, discourses, which is called the Chula Shunyata Sutta, the, discor the, the shorter discourse on emptiness. It's Majma 121, if you want to look it up. It's fairly short. That's what it's called, the short discourse. Uh, but the sutta after it is called the long discourse, and they're actually the same length. <laughs> but the, the sh I find the short discourse, or the one that's called the short discourse, um, is actually, I find, more in, somehow more revealing. And it, it opens with um, Ananda coming to the Buddha and saying, I remember you once told me that for the, most, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. For the most part, I dwell in emptiness. What do you mean by that? So the sutta, the discourse, is effectively the Buddha extrapolated and, and reflecting on what, he, what it means to dwell in emptiness. And this comes back to something I was talking of yesterday. The, 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 the centrality of this notion of dwelling. There's nowhere in these early discourses where emptiness is presented as something that you need to understand, something you need to gain some sort of privileged insight into. Instead, it's spoken of as a dwelling. Quite literally, there's another sutta, in the Pali texts, where the Buddha says that emptiness is the Mahapurusha Vihara, the dwelling of the great person. The dwelling of the great person. So it's again nothing to do with getting rid of the self, but the great person dwells in emptiness. And I think it's here we begin to get a sense of how emptiness becomes a synonym for solitude. Because the way that the sutta um, then continues, the Buddha says that, uh, he, the Buddha starts by saying, well look, here we are in this monastery and there's a lot going on, a lot of men, a lot of women, da 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 da, but there's no 
commerce going on. There are no business people. There's no horses and cattle and all these things. This place is empty of those things. And then he says, imagine that though there's a monk who says, well, that's true. There's no busyness of the city going on in this place. But there's a lot of people around, a lot of other monks around. It's still kind of busy. I think I'll go off to the forest. And so he goes off to the forest. And when he gets to the forest, he thinks, oh, wow, this is incredible. This is so nice. Uh, none of those monks and nuns and all that kind of stuff, just me and my... And then he realizes, hmm. Um, he then begins to realize after a while, when he gets used to being in the forest, that it's kind of noisy and busy too. So then he says, okay, I'd better get into a state of meditation. And then the text describes him going through all of these meditative states. He goes through, he goes into these formless concentrations on the infinity of consciousness, the infinity of space, nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. And with each step he takes into achieving a meditation of even greater subtlety and refinement, initially that feels like an enormous um, uh, insight and enormous satisfaction that he's got into this really, really quiet and still space. But at a certain point, that too begins to have its shortcomings and he needs to go to somewhere even subtler. But in the Buddhist scheme of things, there ain't no place more subtle than neither perception nor non-perception. That's as subtle as you get. So then the monk goes into a meditation called the meditation of signlessness. There's no marks or themes or characteristics at all. And then he realizes, well, wait a minute, this meditation, it's something, it's impermanent. It comes, it goes, it's contingent, it's contrived. I've somehow manufactured it. And it's only when he realizes that that his mind is freed. He realizes whatever state of meditation I get into and feel that that is, as it were, the end of the road, that's the ultimate reality, that it'll dawn on him at some point that actually, no, that too is going to come to an end. That too is dependent on causes and conditions. And so, I'll read you the text itself and, and, and how it, uh, in a sense, comes to a, a conclusion. Uh, the monk realizes a, a signless meditation of the heart, this signlessness, is conditioned and contrived, and whatever is conditioned and contrived is impermanent and subject to cessation. And in knowing and seeing thus, his heart is freed from the influences of craving, of becoming, and ignorance. And in this, free, in this freedom, the insight dawns, oh, this is freedom. So freedom is found not by getting into some deep state of contemplation and just staying there, but it's achieved by recognizing how all contingent things will come and go. So all of these deep meditations are basically dismissed as a kind of a, kind of a, a distraction, almost. What's interesting, of course, is that in this process, the monk 
is seeking increasing degrees of solitude from the monastery, which is away from the town, from the forest that's away from the monastery, from these different states of meditation, each one of which um, it goes beyond the other, is absent of the one before. His solitude is increasing, 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 increasing until he realizes that to hold on to any particular state will still be holding on to something that is contingent, impermanent, and contrived. And when he realizes that, then he realizes that all experience is of this nature. And if I could rest in that insight and in that understanding, then I would be free from this craving to somehow achieve some final state. The text continues, and this is the monk, the hypothetical monk the Buddha's describing. He says, with none of the anxieties due to those influences, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. In other words, this process brings him back into his body and his senses. His experience is empty only in the sense that it's empty of confusion and craving and grasping. So emptiness here is the emptiness of these reactive patterns of mind. And to dwell in emptiness therefore means to dwell in this non-reactive awareness that is fully conscious, fully present, fully aware of what is going on. This state of awareness he says to himself, is empty of those influences, those reactive patterns. That which is not empty is this, the six sense fields of a living body. So it's an embodied, grounded dwelling in the senses, but one that's no longer caught up in the proliferations and the reactions and the habits of the grasping mind. So he regards this awareness as empty of what is not there and of what remains he knows this is what's here. So, so is this entry into emptiness in accord with what happens undistorted and pure. So this brings our understanding of solitude um, very much into the heart of ordinary lived experience. That solitude is not to be found in a forest, it's not to be found in a deep state of formless meditation. It's to be found by learning to dwell in your body, in your senses, but in a way that's empty of the habitual reactive patterns that push and pull you around to get in, attached to this, to get rid of that. And that's, of course, I feel very much, the space of mind that we're seeking to come to rest in as we practice mindfulness, as we practice 
a Zen meditation or, or pretty much any kind of um, contemplation that is primarily concerned with being more fully present here and now. Accepting what's going on in the flesh of your experience. No longer driven and compelled by your reactive habits. And that to me describes not only emptiness but also an inner solitude. The two at this point I think become one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.